You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So welcome to our July episode of the Simulcast Journal Club. I'm Victoria Brazel and I'm joined again by Ben Simon to bring you our paper of the month and a few extras as well. How are you, Ben? Yeah, I'm really good. We've had a good month yet again. I feel like we're hitting the stride. I know, lots of discussion. Hmm. Uh, just before we get into it, a couple of little simulcast announcements, one being uh, don't forget the bubbles. I'm looking forward to it because this is a fantastic paediatric emergency conference which will be held down at the Crown Convention Centre in Melbourne, 26th to the 29th of August. But the day you really want to be there is Tuesday, the 27th, when simulcast presents and we've got a session uh where all three of us are doing an interview and um, I think it'll be a really dynamic format, Ben. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I'm uh, a bit nervous about that lack of control on the big stage, but uh, I think it'll be fun. I think it will be. And, uh, of course, the other while we're talking conferences, uh, Jesse and I are going to be at Resus Toronto, Resus TO, and if you haven't been to the Simulcast website yet to have a look at that program, you should. It's going to be a really interesting conference. I don't know if you've had a look at it, Ben, but it's a sort of combination of talks, some actual simulations, some case discussions where we really explore a lot of concepts around teamwork, resuscitation and simulation. So I guess I'm just giving you a bit of FOMO there, Ben. Uh, just a tiny bit. It looks really, really awesome. I uh, can't wait to hear how it goes. Yes, and Simulcast will obviously be bringing you some highlights, as will MCRIT, as will uh, a range of other podcasters who are going along and uh, summarising it, no doubt, from different perspectives. But we're here to talk about papers, Ben, and uh, why don't you tell us about the interesting paper we did this month and the discussion? Yeah, absolutely. So this month we looked at a paper that I think probably in some ways is an instant classic. It's uh, called Difficult Debriefing Situations, a Toolbox for Simulation Educators. And it's by Vincent Grant et al. And it was published in Medical Teacher in uh, May 2018. And um, essentially, Vincent, the author, describes this as kind of 10 years of distilled experience for him. Um, it starts out with the authors outlining six common types of challenging debriefing situations. So things like shy learners, disengaged learners, learners who are dominant and have poor insight into their own errors, or even learners who are dominant but have good insight into their medical knowledge, uh, emotional learners, and then defensive learners. And it looks at those problems from kind of a both a preventative and a reactive uh, frame. So they identify first some proactive strategies to look at that might prevent the problems happening in the first place. So uh, things like a good pre-brief, the right environment, uh, using the right kind of eye contact for the right moment and uh, appropriate use of body language. And then they move on to some uh, really interesting reactive strategies, uh, which to me kind of sound simple but i think the execution is kind of deceptively con complex so they talk about things like the use of silence normalization generalization validation paraphrasing broadening topics to the rest of the group naming the dynamic and previewing and then they also talk about uh lastly kind of a longer term strategy of following up with your learners after the debrief if something's been challenging um, it was a really, really useful paper for me personally. Vic, how did you find it? 
Yeah, like you said, uh, destined to be a classic and certainly probably summarises a lot of the chatter that I hear amongst those expert debriefers, particularly with respect to labelling those strategies. And I think once you can name something, it is often easier to access it as a strategy or teach it to those you're working with or recognise it in co-debriefers. So uh, I think great work and I think distillation of expertise is a very good methodology in my book um, if you're just looking for practical guidance. So for me, uh, it's a great way to present a topic like that. I'm not too concerned that it's not a randomised control trial. Yeah, I am. I just want to highlight how you mentioned about how the importance of learning to name stuff. And I think certainly from sort of if I look back to where I was a couple of years ago with my debriefing and now, I think you kind of, before you read about this stuff, it can feel like all these communication techniques and stuff are being used sort of organically and automatically on an emotional level. And you can kind of underrate how useful it can be to actively choose the right strategy for the right moment. And I think that's one of the most powerful aspects of the paper. Were there any particular techniques that stood out for you or that you like to use? Well, they name it as a technique, but I think it comes out in the philosophy. And uh, it's just about this sort of leaning in and naming the dynamic, which you mentioned in the list. And uh, the idea of not uh, probably having some bravery as a debriefer and kind of stepping up when required and not avoiding things like conflict or elephants in the room, as our expert commentator put it. Uh, so for me, that's a good one. But all those other strategies like uh, normalizing things and validating, um, I think like you, I've been more able to do that when I had a name for it. Yeah, it helps a lot. So I might just jump on uh, you mentioning our expert of the month. So uh, Steph Barwick is our expert this month, and she's a registered nurse and a registered midwife, and she's also the acting director of simulation at MARTA Education in Brisbane. And she's got a passion for critical care nursing and simulation-based education. Um, and sh we've been involved with her in, uh, from a simulcast perspective previously uh, when we've discussed the sort of interesting research she's been doing in terms of looking at patients and their families and their responses to in-situ sim. So she's doing some really creative, fascinating stuff. And one of Steph's favorite phrases that we hear from her is this, uh, she, she says, name it to tame it. Um, so I'm just going to quote from her on, in her expert, expert response. And she says, look, the reactive strategies described in this paper. I'd like to touch on two that really resonated with me, naming the dynamic and learn a follow-up. When challenging situations come up in a debrief, we have the dilemma, do we avoid or do we lean in? And the best option is to lean in and name the dynamic. She says, the elephant in the room can derail a debriefing because the elephant draws its power from the fact that it hides in the shadows and loses its power when the light is turned on. Name it to tame it is my mantra when faced with this situation. Drawn from psychology, this mantra links to the concept of affect labeling, whereby an emotional state that is experienced can be disrupted by the simple act of labeling the emotion. In other words, naming a negative emotion or dynamic has the power to tame it. Um, and I really love that little paragraph from Steph. Um, 
She also looks at a lot, sort of reflects on a lot of the practical strategies that she found personally useful in the in the article, um, and then she combines that with her significant clinical experience running a whole truckload of insight use him, and reflects on some factors that aren't so clearly highlighted in the paper, such as advocating that learners themselves have a role in learning how to participate in debriefing effectively. I think for all of us, you mentioned it, Steph mentioned it as well, but this paper, I think, when I look at the group responses from our bloggers this month, kind of there was the two separate big things that we learned. One was we sort of learned to name those individual techniques and then more importantly was this concept that Mary Fay first raised of this concept of leaning in. Um, And I think there's this meta educational moment in this paper where by breaking down a seemingly insurmountable task like having a really challenging emotional conversation with someone and they break it down through the paper into sort of small concrete steps it actually makes those conversations not seem so insurmountable anymore and it's almost like reading the paper kind of gives you the confidence to really jump in and have some of those spicy educational conversations that you might be a little bit nervous about addressing. Yes, I was just left thinking if only I could use these skills somewhere other than my debriefing then. Well, you know, there's a good case study about that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the only thing you haven't mentioned so far that is truly excellent here is I hope everybody is following the drama that is ensuing in (laughs) Namali's life because you need to. And I've had a preview of what's happening next month. So I'm just saying, read the case study, take note. Well, I hope, it, I hope nothing else people read it when we put out the um, the annual yes. summary so they can read it all okay. at once. We'll see if anyone notices. But um, moving back to the, to the bloggers, so I think Lean In and Tell Us More were the two big kind of themed responses to this month because people really found the paper almost like a little confidence booster to jump in and have those challenging conversations. Um, Mary Face started the conversation with a really nice quote where she says, look, what the grant at our paper provides are practical strategies for leaning in, helpful to novice and experienced debriefers. The phenotypes they describe are all situations we've dealt with, disengagement, domination by one who has poor insight, etc. And I find the most helpful section of the paper to be the toolbox in which the authors describe both proactive and reactive strategies. It's been my experience that with difficulty briefing situation, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And as my pre-briefings have gotten better over the years, my debriefing difficulties have decreased proportionally. There are a number of people who echoed that sentiment that uh, things got less hard the more proactive you were in those early phases. Um, You mentioned, Vic, actually how useful you thought it would be to have some multimedia that actively demonstrates the use of the techniques outlined in the article, which I think is a really important point, and I'd look forward to um, some of these journals being a little bit more proactive about working in the digital space because I think it could be a really powerful teaching technique. Yeah, just especially when they're so nuanced, a lot of these things about eye contact and body language, It's I think it's hard to put on paper. Yeah, and and just... I mean, it's it's like um, going to a course and seeing something role modelled by an expert. It just hammers it home so much more clearly without the use of the written word. It's a really powerful yep. tool. Uh, other than that, different people kind of wanted to hear a little bit more about different techniques uh, and a little bit more detail about some of them. Um, but overall, the 
group response to the paper was very, very positive and very appreciative. Um, Susan Ella sort of closed out the discussion with um, her mentioning one technique that she likes to use, which wasn't named, which is simply that of listening, uh, which I really liked. So she says, I found that one of the things I needed to do in the pre-brief to avoid challenging debriefing sessions was to listen to participants' concerns or experiences with simulation, to be mindful but not focused on their experiences or triggers regarding simulation. And we're very lucky to have Vincent come along and uh, comment at the end of the month. And he was very considered and pretty much looked at everyone's responses and responded individually to our either concerns or critiques, which I was really appreciative. So thank you so much for that, Vincent. So shall we move on to the the other papers that you've looked at? Yeah, absolutely. Well, congratulations on that one, Ben. And uh, we'll hear about our next month's paper. But before we do that, uh, and this is a paper entitled No-Go Considerations for In-Situ Simulation Safety. And this is from Komal Bajaj and the team at uh, New York City Health and Hospital Sim Program together with Mary Patterson, who we've had on Simulcast um, from Children's National Medical Centre in Washington. And uh, I think this is an important paper, again, thinking about this distillation of expertise. This is essentially the same method here, but it certainly comes from uh, two programs with large, well-developed in-situ sim programs with a lot of experience. Uh, Mary Patterson was the author of a pretty major article um, back four or five years ago looking at uh, some of the outcomes from in-situ simulation and identifying latent safety threats. So as I said, it's a commentary opinion piece. They start with a bit of a background to insight your simulation and quickly get into, look, we know it's good for lots of reasons. We can start to examine native teams in their native environment and look at systems, but there are risks. And these include risks to the participants, both physical and psychological safety, but also issues um, and risks to the organisation and patient care that might be disrupted. And uh, so unsurprisingly, a lot of insight your sim programs um, have issues related to should we go ahead or not go ahead at any given time because of concerns uh, related to the workload or potentially compromising the care of the real patients. And as they nicely say, one of the risks is uncertainty as to whether the sim goes ahead because it creates a lot of stress in the clinical environment. And I know exactly what they're talking about, where people are trying to say, should we, shouldn't we? And that in itself is a source of stress, quite aside from going ahead. So uh, then they go on to really describe uh, the answer, as it were, in three parts. The first being, well, how would you go about developing um, no-go criteria and uh, essentially talk about how a process of consultation between the right kind of people in terms of service leadership and simulation leadership. Uh, But then they actually go on to say, well, these would be the what of those criteria. And um, I'll give the list here without going into the details, but unsurprisingly, things like staffing, things like workflow patterns, i.e. don't do it at times when you've got minimal staffing, uh, clinical load and acuity, equipment needs, and then unanticipated events or threats to psychological safety. Now, these seem pretty intuitive, but they expand on a bit of detail about that. And then perhaps very nicely, the third element is a very specific table one uh, example. So this is their no-go considerations in their labour and delivery suite. And they are things like if you've actually got a caesarean going on in uh, labour and delivery or the main operating room, if you've actually got a uh, rapid response team active at that time or 
more than uh, less than eight nurses who are on shift. So these are not um, surprising, but it's really nice, I think, to see them sort of documented in a sort of framework that then I think others could come and go, well, here I've checked off on the issues related to the staffing, the workflow, the clinical load, et cetera, for my no-go criteria. So as I said, it's not a complicated paper, but I think it's just evidence of the maturation of Insight Sim that we're starting to get guidance about some of the uh, things that confound many of us who are doing it, um, albeit without a too rigid a prescription, which I think the authors acknowledge was never going to work given the different contexts that people that were in. So I liked it, Ben. What did you think? Yeah, I liked it as well. Um, I think it's just a really nice sort of practical paper that you can come back to and reference when you're thinking about your own in situ stuff um, and just check for your own blind spots about things that you haven't considered. Um, we had to cancel our Insight Sim on Tuesday because we had a child who didn't want to get their earring pulled out of their earlobe and so they ran, <laughs> ran into the, the – we've got this like metal sculpture kind of thing outside the emergency department and they managed to find their way into it in a way that no parent or security guard could get them out but they couldn't go anywhere else so they were just kind of stuck and trapped outside the emergency department and so that took up a fair amount of our time so i think maybe we'll have to write that one into our no-go criteria yeah i think that would even be rather a nice letter to the editor back to simulation in healthcare (laughs) Um, in response to this article i I, I gross oversight start working on that tonight because i didn't offer that example Anyway, it's going to be a much-cited article, I think. So uh, ISS uh, practitioners and programs, people thinking about starting them, have a look at that because I think it'll save you a lot of grief. You're listening to Simulcast. All right. So then moving on to our next paper, which uh, I really liked because it was sort of pretty much completely different to most of the papers that we see. And this is a paper called The 100 Most Cited Articles on Healthcare Simulation. Uh, a bibliometric review, and this is by Walsh and colleagues, an Irish group, and uh, also in simulation in healthcare from July this year, uh, which sought to find out the 100 most cited articles on healthcare simulation. So it just is a bit like the Hot 100 Triple J, Ben. It was a bit exciting. It was, yeah, but a fairly surprising outcome, I'd have to say, personally. <laughs> Well, sometimes that happens with the Hot 100. You're there for the, <laughs> the entire Australia Day and the top one is like not the one you thought it was going to yeah, be. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just I just spend the hottest 100 feeling old now. <laughs> Who are these people? Who are these bands? I don't understand. All right. Well, what did they do? So it's this will be a method that um, I don't think will be familiar to many of us um, called a citation analysis. And without going into too much detail for that, it's, it is pretty much what it sounds like. So the authors basically searched Scopus and Web of Science using some terms that uh, seemed fairly intuitive, simulation-based education, simulation-based research, and healthcare professionals. So they identified many thousands of articles using those search terms and then sorted them according to time cited, highest to lowest, and then applied a series of inclusion and exclusion criteria, essentially to make sure that these really were the articles that we're talking about, which is 
simulation-based education, irrespective of method, but definitely involving healthcare personnel. And importantly, and perhaps controversially, they excluded some things related to uh, mathematical modelling and computational simulation um, or things that were just related to clinical vignettes. So they ended up with, after the inclusion exclusion criteria, with about 281 uh, articles, and then they picked the top 100 most cited. So uh, before I give the results, Ben, what, what did you think it was going to be? Oh, look, I was outraged. No debriefing articles. Yeah, yeah. So I think it, it made me realize how huge the world of simulation is, I think, because you realize you just did the little thing that I'm mostly focusing on is actually a small drop in the water of what's out there. Don't write yourself off so quickly, but no safe container. Like no safe container. What's that about? Like, come on, how is that a top one hundred? That's my next angry letter to the editor. All right. Well, what did they find? Just to be confronting for Dr. Simon. Uh, well, first of all, just to sort of describe the papers a little bit before we come up with a couple of the ones that were there. So they broke it down a little bit. Most of the articles were the biggest number were from the United States, with big groups also from the UK and Canada. Most of them were, as they described, non-systematic reviews, and there was a preponderance of procedural and technical skills versus non-technical skills, and a preponderance of surgical journals. And some of that did surprise me, which like you, just reflects my reading. I would like to think mine's broader than yours, but clearly still not that broad because uh, that wouldn't have been what I would have thought either. Now, I guess I'll sort of pause here to say, obviously, what you get is what you ask for in any of these things. And maybe if the search terms had been different or the inclusion or exclusion criteria had been different, we might have got different results. But that said, I think uh, it's been pretty comprehensive. All right. So what about the top ones? I know everyone is uh, agonizing, but I will just pick out a couple here. The first one being uh, Seymour's paper about the use of uh, laparoscopic skills training using virtual reality uh, to get surgical trainees on the learning curve for gallbladder surgery. And that is a paper that is well known. I certainly had heard of that beforehand. It's got 1,141 Scopus citations, so not to be ignored. And I guess it was one of the early papers that focused on does sim work and essentially it did it showed that if you trained using the simulator you hopped on the learning curve a lot faster than people who were um, starting with patients you basically could knock out that first error prone part of the learning curve through sim before you started on real patients so it's an important paper uh, some of the others that sort of come down, we've got a BME systematic review as number two. That's Barry Isenberg and team in 2005. That's obviously had an update since then. But given, you know, older papers would tend to fare well in this because they've had more time to accumulate citations and that's had 1,300 papers. Uh, there's a few other interesting ones. Um, just to give you an idea about the diversity of methodology, one, uh, number five is uh, by Ericsson um, related to deliberate practice, but actually the paper is an invited address. So, um, you know, RCT is in your face. Like there, uh, there's a lot of, um, yeah, right <laughs> there's a lot of these truly non-systematic reviews in here, which I guess just probably shows uh, the evolution of SIM over time and the uh, utility of expert opinion in the absence of other methodologies. Uh, that these papers have been cited um, so frequently. So did you have any other favourites in the uh, top nine that they listed there, Ben? 
No, I was too busy being upset to to read them all individually. You were much more uh, studious. Uh, Okay, so what they say at the end by way of conclusion, the field is maturing and there's been a move away from research questions focused on does simulation work to an assessment of the conditions under which simulation is most effective. And I think that is an important conclusion. I hope it's true. I'm not, you know. In terms of their analysis, it was a little bit more simple than that. Uh, I'm, you know, I think they can probably say that, but it's hard to really prove it. And then they give a sort of aspirational goal that um, hope that in providing an overview of highly cited works that will help identify topics for further research. So I guess we'll uh, watch with interest. Now, I don't know if Jesse's told you that, but this paper is relevant as well because uh, in his interview in our don't forget the bubble session he's going to be interviewing you and i in a journal club session and apparently we have to pick a paper out of this top 100 i'm looking forward to that that'll be fun simulcast okay and the final paper uh is titled virtual gaming simulation exploring self-debriefing virtual debriefing and in-person debriefing and this is a paper by Verkul et al., a uh, Toronto-based um, group, mainly nursing. And this is clinical simulation in nursing in July 2018. And I included this for a few reasons. One is it really is uh, one of these uh, papers that valiantly tries to look at the question of what debriefing is best, uh, but also because I feel like we haven't done many papers from clinical simulation in nursing. And particularly looking at this paper, it made me sort of wonder a little bit about some of the um, profession-specific things that whether they're good, bad, or indifferent, how that might influence how people publish things. I'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, but yeah, what sort of debriefing is best? Do you think we should be even asking this question, Ben, or is it all an art rather than a science? Well, I think I'd like to not ask it, but I think it's probably pretty important. Uh, especially in their context, which I'll just tell you, uh, in a minute. So basically this was a, uh, research project that looks at three different types of debriefing given to learners following a virtual reality simulation event. And I think this is relevant because particularly with these virtual reality sims, like the ones they describe, I guess it's very efficient, the fact that people can do it asynchronously and on their own. So obviously some of those advantages are lost if you have to bring people together for a group debrief or if you have to spend a lot of time in just a one-on-one debrief with people. So I think it's particularly relevant for this context, and it may or may not be the same as if one had a team-based, synchronous, uh, face-to-face simulation. Uh, So just to describe what they did. So these were first-year nursing students, and they essentially played a virtual reality game where they had to be the nurse going on a home visit looking at the assessment of uh, mental health and interpersonal violence. And basically they had little film clips that they watched and then the nursing students had to make decisions about what they thought was the right uh, management or dealing with the situation. And there were, as they described, 13 decision points. So the students did the simulation and they were randomised into three groups. They either got a self-debrief, a facilitator-led in-person debrief, or a facilitator-led virtual debrief. So they were the three groups. Uh, Interestingly, all three groups 
were given the same questions. So in the paper, they've got a table there which lists eight questions that were both given as a written form to the self-debrief group and were used by the facilitators in the in-person and virtual facilitator-led groups. And these were familiar questions if you've ever done any debriefing. Tell us about your feelings as you did this. Please summarise what's happened. Uh, What have you learned in relation to this? Uh, What can you take from this away? Um, Here's some of the learning outcomes. So they list them down there and they created a bit of consistency across the three methods. So sounds like maybe not uh, the kind of approach I've taken or the scenario I'm involved with, but I think one that people will increasingly um, do, Ben. I think I can see this kind of training in medical and nursing school being quite big. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in in some ways it it reflects that need to mass produce SIM, doesn't it? And and so automating that process somewhat is a is a necessary um, byproduct of that. Uh, I totally know what you mean. We're going to be trying to create more volume, I think, in the people who can access simulation based experiences. Okay, so. The students were in their three groups. There were 24 of them. And then they did a series of focus groups uh, using semi-structured interviews to find out how that debriefing landed on those who were being debriefed, i.e. the learners. And the paper then reports various themes and quotations from these focus groups in this framework, the 3D model model of debriefing, diffusing discovery, deepening an environment. And I'm not going to go into great detail, but essentially it just gives a little highlight as to how students in each group felt about their debriefing, what they felt had been explored well, what had been unexplored, and what impact it had had on them. Um, And I just note at this point, because I was starting to think, oh, that's an interesting outcome measure, but then I found out that, in fact, they'd used exactly the same study group and process and also in a different paper uh, reported some qualitative outcomes. So although um, so it's sort of referenced in this paper but not reported, they also, uh, with these students, did a um, quantitative measure of self-efficacy of knowledge related to the area and a thing called the debriefing experience scale. Uh, And it's worth having a look at that paper as well, and I'll put the link in the show notes. Um, But essentially they showed no difference in self-efficacy or knowledge, but they did show a difference in the debriefing experience scale. And unsurprisingly, uh, the self-debrief had, they felt that they didn't uh, get as much out of it as the facilitator-led debrief. But there was no difference in knowledge or self-efficacy. So um, this really interesting paper, I think it gives us a highlight and I think where they end up concluding is that they think maybe a combination is good and maybe there should be a period of time for a self-debrief which can then prime people for a facilitator-led debrief. I thought a couple of the claims in here were a bit bold saying uh, it shows that would be a good strategy but they didn't actually test that. That said, I find myself thinking as I walk away, that's something I wouldn't mind trying. So um, I think it's kind of an interesting paper, Ben. Yeah, I think so too. It's, it incorporates an interesting technology. I tried out the game. It was pretty good too, although I, I got an error for accepting the T from the lady, which I thought was a nice way of creating rapport. And, um, was the tea poisoned I, because she had a... The tea might have been poisoned, issue. I think, was the take-home message. I didn't know her well enough to accept her tea. To, to, it, uh, but it did make me reflect on safety when you're doing a mental health assessment. So, you know, I think mm. they succeeded in their 
their learning point more importantly than what score I got. Um, but they were Canadian, aren't they? The nicest people in the world. Well, <laughs> I'm a Canadian. Yeah. yeah, I think if you had the same game in Britain, then you know the the, the scoring system would be slightly different because that would just be incredibly rude. You'd just get That's kicked true, out. That's true. Yeah, yeah. But um, I did feel that it was a little low powered for the conclusions that it was making. But um, I really enjoyed the discussion. Yeah, and I think one thing that really interested me, though, in terms of the virtual debriefing, is um, even in Journal Club, when we're using text and stuff, the less kind of non-verbal cues you have, the easier it is to have misinterpretation and stuff. So, um, yes, and I haven't mentioned that, that but very, very carefully. Yeah, I know. I think you're right. And I haven't sort of gone into the detail in that, but there is actually a fair bit of gold in the comments from the learners uh, if you want a deep dive into thinking about the impact of debriefing on learners. Mm. Um, the one other little reflection I had on this paper, and I kind of triangulated this with some of my friends, is that, you know, in the introduction, they give, as per usual, a little bit of a literature review about debriefing. And I just found it interesting that many of the authors that we're quoting and previewing, Ching, Epic, Grant, Rudolph, uh, Sawyer, are not mentioned. And when I looked at, well, who are these references? And a lot of them were more nursing-specific journals. And it made me think, you know, have we actually got some siloing in here that obviously because of where I come from, I haven't noticed because I haven't read this journal enough. Um, I don't know if you noticed that, Ben. I didn't notice that in this specific paper, but um, I remember logging on to um, the Society for Simulation in Healthcare, uh, what's the word, the website, yep. and going onto the forums. And the content of the discussions on the forums, which are quite vibrant, are really, really different to the kind of conversations that I have with my colleagues or with you about sim so it's really fascinating there are these little silos <laughs> like it's a big industry and there's all, all these different sort of takes and and focus groups and and um different agendas out there and it can be quite surprising when you think when you think you know we're this tiny little community and actually it's big mm. yes well i guess we celebrate the rich tapestry uh but i think it is important to recognize that most of us are very situated in our own experience and that includes our reading and writing experience all right well uh ben you better tell us about next month great so i am really looking forward to next month it's um a, a little sort of favorite paper of mine it's by margaret beerman and uh, elizabeth malloy and it's entitled intellectual streaking the value of teachers exposing minds and hearts and it's from a medical teacher um and we are going to have as our expert for the month uh, a lady called Jane Stanford, who is the um, sort of educator's educator for the uh, Advanced Pediatric Life Support Association in Australia. And I'm excited because Jane was my uh, first intellectual crush in terms of the very first kind of person who taught me any kind of educational theory really when i when i went along to do the generic instructor course and start teaching on apls and uh she often quotes that paper in particular when when she's training new instructors so it's a fascinating paper about sort of combining uh, or exposing your own vulnerabilities as an educator and the pros and cons that can come from that 
Ah, fantastic. Well, that would be lovely to hear from Jane and uh, nice to, we sort of feel like we're coming full circle in many ways. As we know, Margaret Beerman did one of our first podcasts at Simulcast on uh, research in simulation. So we look forward to uh, a vibrant and interesting discussion on that. Me too. And it's also, well, speaking of coming full circle, it is uh, the second anniversary of the Journal Club next month. So we've been going for two years straight. Looking forward to our our next ebook. Yeah, absolutely. I'm getting it ready. (laughs) Yeah, well, as our friends know, this really is just an excuse for your romance novel to be launched into the stratosphere. Man, I don't want to like say that the case study I wrote for next month is the greatest case study of all time. I do want to heavily imply it. If nothing else for the case study, go along to www.simulationpodcast.com. There you'll find the paper of the month, the discussion, the case study, uh, and you'll also find after this month the summary of the papers and the links to them. So come along, join the discussion, and uh, tell us what you think about those. So just with those announcements again, just a reminder, there's about two or three tickets left to Resus TO. I think there's about the same number for Don't Forget the Bubbles. So um, again, go onto the website for the details of those if you're interested. So, uh, well, Ben, lovely to chat to you again, and uh, we look forward to seeing you again next month. Yeah, we might have to record it live from uh, Melbourne. Excellent. Good plan. Mm. We shall do. Cool. You're listening to Simulcast. 